If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Now, welcome back to Horse Chats, and I'd like to welcome back Camilla Wishaw. Camilla, are you there? I am, Glenis. How are you? Oh, wonderful to talk to you again. Camilla, we haven't chatted for a little while, but just before we have a chat, let me just go over the motto of International Horse College. So the motto of International Horse College is people, safety and horse welfare. So if that's the way you feel when you're working with horses, then go to internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352, that's internationalhorsecollege.com. Now, Camilla, welcome back again. <laughs> Just remind me what we're going to chat about. I think we're going to chat about joint health, Glenis. Quite a joint uh, health is pop, a re- pop, yeah, yeah, absolutely, topic. absolutely. Okay, so regardless of a horse's age or discipline that it's involved in, so. Okay, so just tell us a little bit. If I had not heard of joint health at all before, I'd never listened to any of your previous chats. If you were going to explain to me what is joint health. What would you say? I don't know anything about joint health. I don't know. I've only just got my first horse and I don't know about joint health. Look, Glennis, that's a really good question. And I think whether you've got your first horse or your 50th horse, I think we use the term joint health so much, but I think very few of us actually stop to consider, well, what exactly is joint health, you know? And to truly get a good understanding of joint health, it's really valuable to understand uh, joint anatomy and structure, so, you know, what comprises a joint, uh, the function of a joint, so, you know, why do our horses have joints, and the different types of joints. So, you know, it's worth touching on all those things. As well as that, I think whenever we're talking about joint health in our horses, we tend to use the term in relation to orthopaedic soundness in our horses. So I think keeping in mind, you know, structure, function, anatomy of our horses and the different types of joints. We want sound, healthy horses that can go along well. So if we look purely at the structure of joint, a joint in its simplest term is where two or more bones come together. Um, And when they come together, we call that an articulation. Now, in most cases, not all, as we'll chat about in a minute, but in most cases, joints function to provide movement to our horses so they help them, you know, move along and also to absorb the shock of motion. Um, Horses have three different types of joints. So they've got what we call fibrous joints. These are primarily found between the bones in a horse's skull and don't really allow for movement. So they're one of those, you know, one of the exceptions. Um, We have cartilaginous joints. So these are joints that are connected by cartilage and they allow for limited movements, so not a whole heap, a little bit of movement. And we find these between the vertebra of the spine in our horses and ponies. And then the most uh, common joint type of joint and the one we certainly focus most on are what we call synovial joints. So these have the most movement of all the joints. And when we're thinking of joint health and orthopedic soundness in our horses, we're generally referring to synovial joints. Now, so we've got those three different categories of joints. Within the category of synovial joints, um, there are different types of synovial joints. So we can have 
something such as a ball and socket joint, you know, in the horse's hip. We can have a hinge joint, which is found in a horse's elbow and their fetlock. And these different types of synovial joints influences how that joint moves and the range of motion of that joint. So if we think of the ball and socket joint in the hip, that allows for far greater uh, motion and fluidity and movement than a hinge joint so in the fetlock and the elbow. Okay. Now, okay. Oh, our sorry. horses, no, you're right. <laughs> we wanted to go into a bit of a detail just to, yeah, you know, please. really paint the picture. Yeah. Um, so regardless of the type of synovial joint, so, you know, we just briefly talked about ball yeah. and socket or a hinge joint, regardless of the type of synovial joint, they all share the same basic structure. So synovial joints are unique in that they have a space between those articulating bones. So those two or more bones that come together in a joint, there's space between the bones. We call this space a synovial or joint cavity. Now, the bones at a synovial joint, in a synovial joint, they're covered in a special kind of hyaline cartilage and we call this articular cartilage. We've got the bones coming into the joint on the outside of those bones, where they come into the joint, they've got special cartilage. Now, this cartilage helps to reduce the friction between the bones in the joints. So when our horses are moving, it helps to reduce friction and it helps to absorb shock of that movement, so allowing our horses to move freely and comfortably. Now, surrounding the synovial joints in our horses is a sleeve-like capsule, which is called the articular capsule, and this effectively encloses, you know, that synovial joint cavity and those articulating bones. So it sort of nicely wraps it together. And this articular capsule has two layers. It's got an outer fibrous capsule and an inner synovial membrane. Now, the fibrous capsule, so the outside bit, is made mainly of collagen and it's continuous with the outer layer of the bone, so the periosteum of the bone. The... Um, Fibres of some fibrous capsules contain ligaments which help connect bone to bone. And then on the inside, that inner layer of that articular capsule is the synovial membrane. Now, this has a really important role in terms of joint health, which as we go along in our conversation, I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail, but it secretes what we call synovial fluid. And synovial fluid contains or consists of hyaluronic acid which forms a thin layer over the surfaces within the articular capsule. And this synovial fluid reduces friction by lubricating the joint. It helps to absorb shock within the joint and it helps to protect and maintain cartilage integrity. So it stops that cartilage wearing down. So again, helping with shock, absorbing shock and movement. And it provides nutrients and oxygen to the cells that make up cartilage, which are called chondrocytes. Chondrocytes don't have significant blood flow, so synovial fluid acts to help with that. And it also removes carbon dioxide and metabolic waste products from chondrocytes. Now, the synovial fluid also contains specialised cells called phagocytic cells, and these help to remove microbes and debris that can result from normal metabolic processes and wear and tear in a joint. Some joints also have associated tendons. So tendons are fibrous tissue that connect muscle to bone and they transfer muscle-generated force to the skeleton, helping to facilitate movement. So 
if we stop and think of all those elements within a joint, if we want our horses to have healthy joints and if we're thinking about healthy joints, we need to think about healthy bones, we need to think about healthy articular cartilage, um, we need to think of a healthy articular capsule, we need a healthy synovial membrane um, with good synovial fluid production and we need associated ligaments and tendons to be strong and healthy. And we need to consider all the different factors which influence those different elements. So, yeah, that, in a nutshell, is what joint health is. Okay, so we're talking about influence. Now, I want to take it back to, you know, sometimes I take people back and they regret what they've said, but hopefully this doesn't happen. Way back before COVID in 2019, I think we're up to chat number seven now, but this is about chat number two. And you talk quite a bit about gastrointestinal health in horses. And you emphasize the fact that they have good gastrointestinal health could be related to other things. So is there a role that gastrointestinal health plays in joint health? Are they related at all or not? Absolutely, Glennis. And I'm really glad you raised that point. We often say healthy hoof, healthy horse, mm-hmm. which is true, but so much of our horse's health and so many different seemingly unrelated elements of our horse's health come back to gastrointestinal health. Put simply, when we're talking about gastrointestinal health, we're largely talking about the integrity of the cells lining the gastrointestinal tract. We are talking about the gastrointestinal microbiota. So this is the unique combination of uh, microbes, largely bacteria, but also viruses, fungi, protozoa and archaea that inhabit the gastrointestinal tract. We're talking about digestive enzyme production and function and we're talking about special substance called secretory IgA. So just if your listeners haven't recently listened to those podcasts, um, like encourage them to jump back and listen to them, but just in terms of this conversation, when we're talking about gut health, that's what we're talking about. We know those factors actually influence direct components of joint health. To put it overly simply, we know that imbalances in the composition of the microorganisms within the microbiota can affect joint health in a number of ways. So we know if there's an unhealthy balance of that microbial population, we can have increased inflammation within a joint. That can increase or accelerate bone loss within a joint. Um, it can compromise cartilage integrity and it can also decrease the quality and viscosity of synovial fluid. So synovial fluid, part of how that helps protect the joint or protect the cartilage and the underlying bone and absorb shock is it should be nice and thick and viscous. And when there's a lot of inflammation within the joint, that synovial fluid becomes quite watery and it loses the properties of, of absorbing shock and providing lubrication. So seemingly unrelated good gastrointestinal health helps promote minimal inflammation within the joint as well as maintaining good synovial fluid quality and production. We also know that um, changes in gastrointestinal health or compromised gastrointestinal health can influence bone formation um, and bone turnover. So I think we can sometimes think, well, Once a horse is an adult horse, its bones are fully grown, they're static, they don't change, but they do. Bone 
even in adult horses and fully grown horses, is constantly remodeling. So we have cells within the bone that die off or break down and cells within um, the bone that replace them and build build that bone back. Now, we know or there's some research to suggest that imbalances in a healthy uh, microbial population within the gastrointestinal tract can actually disrupt that bone turnover. So we can our horses can have accelerated bone loss um, and not get that repair rebuilding phase uh, with the cells. We also know that gastrointestinal health, good gastrointestinal health, is absolutely essential for the absorption of key minerals and vitamins and nutrients that our horses need for healthy bones, for healthy tendons, for healthy ligaments, for healthy cartilage. And we also know that healthy gastrointestinal microflora produce substances such as vitamin K, which is needed for good bone and joint health. And they also produce what we call short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids have multiple roles. They're very important for helping reduce inflammation. And they're also actually needed to help absorb calcium properly. And we all know the importance of calcium for healthy bones. Certainly not the only nutrient needed for healthy bones, but it does play a very important part. So although often when we think of joint health, we think solely of the joint, it's important to remember that what we feed our horses, how we feed them, how we manage them, the stress they're under, any medications they're on, they all influence gastrointestinal health, which in turn influences joint health, amongst many other things. So just being really cognizant of that and being aware that if we truly want healthy joints in our horses, we also need to address and promote really good gastrointestinal health. All right. And Camilla, the other thing is too that, um, you know, you'd said we'd done the previous chat about gastrointestinal health and other people, our listeners, must think it's important because they downloaded it quite a few times and we do have what we call a listener's choice. So the most downloaded podcasts, we actually repeat and put them on, you know, like this one was four years later. So so we put up the listener's choice for that chat that you did about gastrointestinal health fairly recently. Well, it was in August. So fairly recently, we put that up again as a listener's choice because people obviously voted and um, decided that it was important, you know, that they need to know a little bit more about gastrointestinal health. So if you're looking for that chat, it's a fairly recent one, uh, number 959. Now, we've talked about gastrointestinal health and the play it has in joint health. What about diet? It obviously has a role. It certainly does, Glennis. And the good thing is a diet that promotes good joint health is largely a diet that promotes good overall health in all facets. So we want a diet in our horses that promotes a healthy gastrointestinal microbiome and meets key nutrient requirements, keeping in mind that different breeds, different ages, different stages of growth, different exercise levels will influence an individual horse's nutrient requirements. And we also want a diet that helps our horses maintain a healthy body weight and composition. So some key simple points in terms of the foundation of a diet that makes for or helps support healthy joint health is a diet that is largely anti-inflammatory. So we want, in simple terms, we want a diet that's relatively low in omega-6 fatty acids and proportionally higher in a special type of fatty acids called omega-3. That helps reduce inflammation. A lot of processed feeds on the market, as well as even less processed feeds, you know, natural feeds and grains, 
even our pastures, tend to be predominantly high in omega-6 fatty acids compared to omega-3 fatty acids. Partly the way we farm and produce these days, um, but it's just worth keeping in mind that we don't really, in my perspective, we don't want to be going and adding extra omega-6 fatty acids into the diet. Um, we want a diet that contains nutrients that are essential for bone and joint and cartilage health, and we want them in appropriate quantities and in appropriate ratios between each of the nutrients. So some of the key nutrients we often think of are calcium, magnesium and phosphorus. But some of the nutrients that don't get so much attention but are also absolutely crucial in terms of bone and cartilage health are nutrients such as boron and manganese and copper, vitamin D and zinc, vitamin A, vitamin E. So ensuring that our horse's diet um, contains those nutrients in suitable quantities and suitable forms. We want a diet that's going to directly promote good gastrointestinal microflora and gastrointestinal health. And from the most basic point of view, our horses should have an absolute minimum of 1.5% of their body weight in dry matter fibre daily. Depending on the time of year and the location of our listeners when they tune into this podcast, one of the most common things I see in practice is horses that have access to good pasture or a lot of pasture. And it can be really easy to think, you know, my horse is constantly grazing. They're in good body condition. Um, They don't need hay. Yet grass is actually really, really low in dry matter fibre. So grass is typically 80 to 90% water, more towards the 90%. uh, But if you've got a more mature grass, uh, maybe 80%. If we're relying on pasture to meet our horse's daily dry matter requirements, they'll fall short of those needs. So that's a long way of saying that Even horses that are on really good pasture need hay to ensure that they get their minimum fibre requirements to help with good gastrointestinal health, which helps with a multitude of things, but also has a significant role to play in joint health. Now, some other things we want to keep in mind is keeping hard feed meal sizes small. So, you know, for your average 500 kilogram horse, we really don't want to be feeding them more than two and a half kilos of concentrate at any one time. We know if we start feeding larger meals that that feed rushes through the stomach, rushes through the small intestine to the large intestine where it ferments and that um, starch should not ferment there. The only thing that should ferment in our horse's home guts is fibre. So just keeping those hard, hard feeds small. We need a diet for our horses that contains sufficient protein. This is absolutely essential for healthy bones, healthy ligaments, healthy tendons, healthy cartilage. And it's really important to remember that it can be really tempting just to want to throw a whole heap of supplements at our horses without first addressing diet. So we go, oh, yep, we want our horses to have good joint health. We'll put them on X, Y, Z supplements without stopping and considering the role diet plays. And although it can seem a bit boring or not very fancy, getting the foundation of the diet right is so essential, not only for joint health, but for overall health. And on that too, I mentioned it, you know, in the previous point, but being aware that um, many commonly used medications in our horses can actually influence nutrient digestion, nutrient absorption, nutrient excretion, nutrient metabolism. So 
although our horses may have a well-balanced diet on paper, if they're on medications like Neprazole, so our key ingredient of our most common uh, gastric ulcer medications, or if they've been on antibiotics or phenylbutazone, so but, or if they've been on corticosteroids, those different medications all affect nutrient status in different ways, but they will change different elements of whether it's absorption, whether it's digestion, whether it's excretion of, you know, some of those key nutrients needed for good joint health. So just being cognizant of that and keeping that in mind. So is there a particular supplement that we need for joint health? Can you talk a little bit about the supplements for joint health? That's a good question, Glennis. So there are a lot of supplements when it comes to joint health on the market. Um, Firstly, being really aware that depending on the country and region where listeners are tuning in from, that there, by and large, tends to be very little regulation about what can be marketed and claimed in terms of supplements. And supplements don't necessarily have to contain ingredients that are listed. And supplements can also contain ingredients that aren't on the label. So just being aware of that in terms of supplementation. In terms of uh, supplements related to joint health, Different supplements work in different ways. So, again, we've talked about bones, we've talked about cartilage, we've talked about synovial fluid, we've talked about inflammation within the joint. Depending on what we are looking to address in the horse in front of us should influence the supplements we use if we choose to use supplements and how we use them. So there are some terrific herbs in terms of joint health but whether you know you're looking at something to reduce inflammation within the joint so something like devil's claw or meadow sweet whether you're looking to promote cartilage integrity so you're looking at something like glucosamine or chondroitin whether you're wanting to improve synovial fluid quality you know so again looking at good anti-inflammatories but potentially looking at hyaluronic acid We've also got things such as MSN, collagen, vitamin C, omega-3 fatty acids. Just throwing any of those things at our horse or pony without stopping to assess that horse's diet, assess its workload, look at its age, look at its life stage, is, in my opinion, of really limited value and can be a really expensive waste of money. So we want to look at the horse and have an understanding of what's happening for that horse Some of those nutrients I listed, something like hyaluronic acid, the current research would suggest, you know, can be useful in the early stages of developmental orthopedic diseases in horses, so young stock, but is probably of really limited value in older horses in many cases. And little nuances such as is a hyaluronic acid in a pelleted form or is it in a liquid form? And if it's in a liquid form, what's its molecular weight? All those things influence whether that supplement is actually going to be of much use for our horses. So not only do we want to consider the actual supplements used, but we need to consider the dosage rate. So again, I said something like glucosamine can be really useful. If we only go and give our horse one milligram of glucosamine, it's going to be of really limited value. Furthermore, glucosamine comes in a couple of different forms and depending on the form used, that will influence how much our horses can digest, absorb and utilise. And then some nutrients work together hand in hand really well. So again, looking at glucosamine, it works best with chondroitin. So giving those together is generally going to result in a better outcome than giving 
one of those supplements on its own. So, yeah, when looking at supplements, regardless of the issue we're treating in our horses, but certainly joint health is very, very relevant and the supplement market is absolutely chock-a-block for joint supplements for horses, we really want to consider those factors. So I do use different supplements extensively to promote joint health in horses, but what is happening for that individual horse, its age, its health history, its diet, its exercise level, a lot of the horses I see in terms of joint health have had x-rays, bone scans, different things like that, using that information to help guide what supplements we use for that horse or prescribe for that horse is really, really important. So keeping that in mind and whenever we're using a supplement, coming back to the question, what are we trying to achieve with that supplement in terms of going back to our very first point in the conversation, you know, what is joint health? In terms of supplements, what are we trying to achieve with that supplement or those supplements? I think it's really, really important, A, to help our horses in the best way possible, um, B, to make sure we're not giving them anything that could potentially be harmful, and C, so we're not wasting time and money because these supplements do add up. And if we're giving our horses stuff that's not well indicated or is ineffective, you know, that's wasted money, that's wasted time, and no one wants that. Yep, absolutely. You know, being a previous eventer, I, I know that if we over-exercise, over-traumatise, you know, that can have quite a lot on joint health. But what about just exercise? You know, can you give us some sort of an idea of what effects exercise has on joint health? Absolutely, Glennis. In terms of exercise, I like to think of, you know, informal exercise versus mm-hmm. formal. So if I'm thinking of informal exercise with horses, I'm thinking of them being turned out in a paddock, running around in a mob, playing with their mates out in the paddock. And then if I'm thinking of formal exercise, I'm thinking of the horse that's in work, whether that's in training, whether it's in competition mode, whether it's racing. So in terms of going back to informal exercise, there's a nice little bit of research to show that horses, I think it looked at weanlings and yearlings, that were raised in paddocks versus those that spent some of their time in paddocks but some of their time stabled, had far better bone density and better tendon and ligament strength, generally speaking. So if we think about it in the simplest sense, those horses that are active and out and about using their body are going to develop that strength, so that bone density, that bone strength. Their tendons and ligaments are going to get conditioning to, you know, do what they're meant to do as opposed to if our horses are in a situation where they're stabled extensively where their bone doesn't get that stimulation and where their ligaments and tendons aren't under that load which helps promote um, strength and stiffness so being aware that even informal exercise plays a really important role in terms of joint health if we look more at formal exercise bone needs exercise to stimulate its turnover There's obviously a healthy level of exercise. Um, We can certainly do too much and then we can get, um, you know, microfractures in bone and we can also get compromised cartilage integrity and wear and tear. But formal exercise um, certainly is very valuable. And for most of us who are equestrians and who have horses, a lot of us, that's one of the main things we want to do with our horses is ride them. Um, Worth being aware that if our horses have time out to spell, so that might be during the winter when it gets dark early and we don't have so much time to ride, 
and the weather's not so conducive to riding. If we choose to turn our horses out at any stage, that when we bring them back into work, we gradually want to increase their workload. So when they're taken out of work, when they're on a spell, their bone density, even if they're kept in a paddock, their bone density will decrease. So we gradually want to build up the strength of those bones and we also want to gradually condition their tendons and ligaments. So one of the biggest mistakes we can make in terms of if we had a horse out to spell is to suddenly go, oh, it's spring now or it's summer and children are on school holidays and we've got Pony Club camp coming up and we suddenly bring our horses back into full work and they've just had months off. Their bones and tendons and ligaments aren't properly conditioned to withstand the workload and then we increase the risk of damage to joints and injury to different parts of the joints. So uh, whenever our horses turned out to spell, gradually increase their workload. Um, Interesting research has recently come out in terms of lunging our horses, particularly if we lunge our horses on tight circles, um, showing that the uneven loading of the joints um, causes compression on the medial side of the joints, so the inside of the joint, joints that's on the inside of the circle, and extra tension on the lateral or the outside of the joint. We know that this can compromise from this research that's been done, cartilage and joint integrity. So in line with that sort of research, obviously there are times where many of us may choose to lunge our horses. Um, again, if we're bringing them back into work or we've got you know a highly energetic horse, but I would encourage uh, listeners to try not to lunge if they don't have to. Um, if they do feel the need to lunge, try not to do it on a tight circle, ideally in a lunging arena or a lunging pen with banked sides. That helps to dissipate the load or more evenly. And the safest pace to lunge at at this stage, we believe, is the trot. So it's the most even loading. And I would really, really encourage people to keep in mind that the horses that are most susceptible to damage to their joints when they're being lunged are those with open growth plates. So, you know, most horses under the age of three still have open growth plates in their limbs. Certainly we know the skeleton doesn't completely, um, you know, stop growing until a horse is sort of five or six, depending on the breed, but certainly in terms of lower limbs and those limbs studied in relation to uh, lunging really trying to avoid lunging horses with open growth plates so yeah there's some different aspects in terms of the effects of exercise on joint health just going back to bring a horse again into work jumping a bit over the place but bring a horse back into work that's been out of work I think sometimes our oldest horses our schoolmasters it can be most tempting to let them go a bit in the paddock thinking that you know they don't need much education well they a lot of them don't need any education but we might just pull them out of the paddock for an event they haven't had much work but they should be fine they know what they're doing some of those horses can be the most susceptible to the greatest loss of conditioning in joints and they don't tend to have uh, the metabolism or the body doesn't tend to have the ability to quickly turn over and repair cells arguably as well as a younger horse they're more likely to have more joint wear and tear and they're more likely to have uh, high levels of inflammation. So just being aware that if we've got an older, reliable horse that we love to pull in out of the paddock to, you know, 
take away on Pony Club camp or an event or something like that, those horses arguably probably need more time to be brought back into work. So just being mindful of that because, again, I think sometimes with those horses it can be really tempting just to pull them straight out of the paddock and go for it. Thinking about the body weight of the horse, does that affect, you know, we, we talk about people get sore knees if they're overweight but we're upright. What about body weight and condition? Is that going to influence joint health? Yeah, so it's a good point, Glennis. Um, Body condition and body weight in our horses and the overall load they're carrying certainly influences joint health. So we know that the more body weight a horse carries or the more load they carry, the more force and wear and tear goes through their joints. It's worth keeping in mind that uh, 60 to 70% of our horses' body weight goes through their front legs, so their front legs are going to take more load. It's really interesting uh, statistic that at certain phases of a gallop, to 2.5% of a horse's body weight goes through one single leg at any phase of the gallop. So, again, if we're looking at our inverted commas average 500-kilogram horse, that's 1,250 kilograms going through one leg at any one time. And so every extra 10, 20, 50, 60 kilos is going to result in more force, more wear and tear through that joint. Now, aside from that, we know that fat tissue specifically, so again, our horse can have body weight from muscle, our horse can have body weight from fat, Um, but if we're looking at the overweight horse, so the horse that's carrying more fat than what we'd like, fat tissue um, acts as what we call an endocrine organ. So by endocrine organ, it means it produces its own uh, lot of hormones and different inflammatory mediators. So Fat tissue, adipose tissue, produces high levels of inflammatory mediators and this high level of inflammation can be destructive to cartilage integrity. It can influence bone remodelling negatively and it can decrease the quality of synovial fluid production. So trying not to let our horses get overly fat is really important too in that a fat horse is going to have more inflammation within their joints. and more, you know, more destructive effects on their joint health. Now, I just want to go back to when we talked about exercise, you talked about the young horses having open growth plates and the and then the older horses and the gradual, you know, return to work. Can you just talk about joint health across the different life stages in the horses? Sure thing, Glennis. So, yeah, at different ages or stages, horses are going to be more susceptible to different types of joint afflictions or conditions in their joints. If we look at younger horses, by and large, they're going to be more susceptible to developmental orthopaedic diseases, also known as DODs. This includes different terms that our listeners might have heard of, so things such as osteochondritis, osteochondrosis, fasciitis, wide angular limb deformities. Um, probably the main focus within developmental orthopaedic diseases is osteochondritis desiccans, so OCDs. Um, it's most common in thoroughbreds and warm bloods, but it can affect any growing horse, and it's where there's defects in joint cartilage and the underlying bone within that joint. So when the horse is growing or developing, um, so we're typically looking at foals, weanlings, yearlings, Cartilage flaps or bone fragments can develop due to abnormal cartilage growth. It can also lead to what we know as cysts or cystic lesions within different joints. 
And it's really important to know that the causes that contribute to developmental orthopaedic diseases are multifactorial. Diet plays a huge role. The way a horse or a foal or a weanling or a yearling is managed plays a huge role. We know that a mare who is in foal, her body weight and body condition can increase or influence her offspring's risk of developmental orthopaedic diseases. We know what the mare is fed influences, again, the long-term health of her offspring. So it's worth being aware that we can influence or decrease or increase, depending on which way we view it, a horse's likelihood of developmental orthopaedic diseases before we've even got a mare in foal, before we've even bred that foal. Um, certainly how that foal is raised as a foal, as a weanling, as a yearling. Um, also, we can influence its risk there in terms of how we feed it, what we feed it. In terms of its body condition, we know that excess body weight and body fat can contribute to or increase the risk of developmental orthopedic diseases. We know that rapid growth rates and high levels of insulin-like growth factor can certainly contribute. Um, we know that particular mineral insufficiencies or deficiencies can contribute. We know that diets excessively high in energy and particularly, you know, starch and things like that can influence. So just being aware that we can influence our horse's long-term joint health before a horse is even conceived, before a horse is even born. But we also have the ability to influence it as it grows up and goes along. Um, Another thing in terms of if we're looking at foals and their risk of um, developmental orthopaedic diseases is the way a foal is informally exercised or turned out and grows can really influence it. So if we have a young foal that's born and then we tip it and its mother out in a large paddock with some older mares or older foals with mares and they run around a lot, that overexertion on a foal's really delicate joint structure, bone structure, cartilage structure, can increase its risk of developmental orthopaedic diseases. So how we manage our foals in terms of turnout, most breeding studs will have what we call small nine-day yards where a foal and its mother will spend the first nine days in and then they'll gradually move to a bigger paddock before joining up with other horses in a slightly bigger paddock and they'll be phased through different size paddocks to help prevent that horse overexerting itself or that foal overexerting itself and increasing its risk of um, developmental orthopaedic diseases from that aspect. Now, if we look at older horses on the other end of the spectrum, they're more likely to have degenerative joint diseases. So uh, most commonly osteoarthritis, where there's inflammation within the joint, uh, often destruction or breakdown of cartilage and poor quality synovial fluid. So instead of it being that nice thick viscous fluid which helps absorb shock um, and lubricates the joint it becomes quite watery and runny and loses some of those really key properties again there are things that we do in the way we feed and manage our horses at every life stage that influences um, the risk and or the severity of osteoarthritis as an older horse so it's workload throughout different stages of life will certainly influence that what it's fed and how it's fed, its gastrointestinal health. Um, is the diet high in inflammation? Is it on certain medications which change nutritional status throughout the life? They can certainly increase a horse's risk of 
developing osteoarthritis or conversely uh, decrease or mitigate the risk. Certainly horses that are worked very hard, but, you know, in those formative growth years before those growth plates or while those growth plates are open. So uh, if we think, you know, horses, you know, race horses in really hard work in some parts of the world that are trained and race really hard really early, their risk for osteoarthritis and joint conditions is going to be higher even as young horses, whereas we tend to think of osteoarthritis as a condition in older horses. So just being being aware and taking those factors into account. Talking about joint health, and there's something that I, you know, more of a personal thing, I like to have a bit more information about joint injections. You know, are they good? Are they bad? Can they cause more damage? Are they legal, you know, if you're going to take your horse out and compete? Is there anything that you can tell us or just talk a little bit about the joint injections in horses? We could open a whole can of worms on joint injections <laughs> in horses, Gladys. Probably a good place to start is realising that there are different types of joint injections and mm-hmm. depending, again, going back to the individual horse and what's happening to that horse in front of us, again, in many cases that horse will have joint x-rays depending on its age, if it's got a history of lameness, if it's not moving so well, um, different vets will lean towards different diagnostics. But just going back to the individual horse and what's in front of us should be our first starting point before we even start to think about injections. Then we can look at what are the different injections. So we have what are called um, IV injections, so they go straight into the vein. There are some IV products um, in terms of joint health. They're not so commonly used in Australia particularly, um, but are certainly used in some parts of the world. These tend to be uh, hyaluronic-based injections, which are believed to decrease inflammation and and increase synovial fluid quality within the joints. Um, In Australia, it's quite common to use uh, intramuscular injections, so IM injections. Generally, uh, or particularly in Australia, we look at products which are sodium pentazan polysulfate-based, so something like pentazan. Different parts of the world, there are you know other products too. You, we can get glucosaminoglycan polysulfate, so products such as Adequan. These are thought to decrease cartilage destruction by reducing inflammation. So when there's a lot of inflammation within a joint, not only does that compromise synovial fluid integrity, so going back to our you know first part of the conversation, but when we get high levels of inflammation in a joint, that results in cartilage destruction and breakdown so if we can reduce the inflammation in the joint then we can help preserve cartilage integrity as well as synovial fluid integrity im injections may stimulate cartilage regeneration there's a bit of a question mark around that but they may and they may improve blood flow to subchondral bone so that's the bone directly underneath cartilage um, then we can look at intraarticular injections so these go straight into the joint itself so these are the ones where if you've watched a vet a joint, uh, an injection straight into a joint, this is what they're doing. So there are several different products that can go straight into a joint. We can use hyaluronate sodium, so that's the salt form of hyaluronic acid, which, again, is a key component of synovial fluid. We can use glucosaminoglycan, so pentazan, polysulfate. We can use corticosteroids, and we can use antibiotics. Now, in many cases, vets will use a combination of these drugs, not all the time, but in many cases they may use, you know, two of these together. 
Regardless of the substance that's injected into a joint, it's really important to know that any intraarticular injection comes with a risk of joint infection. Now, arguably, if the area where it's going to be injected is being properly cleaned and properly scrubbed and sterilised, you've got you know a vet doing it properly, sterile equipment, the risk is low, but it still exists. So it's just worth knowing that if we don't have to do something, if it's not essential, then Reducing risk is always good in that joint injection or sepsis can be absolutely devastating. So just keep it in mind that although intraarticular joint injections are common, they're not without risk. What we do know is research has shown that antibiotics, so that are injected intraarticularly, which generally uh, in the case of IA injections, an antibiotic called amikacin is used. The research has shown that using that antibiotic doesn't decrease the risk of infection. So most often if a vet puts an antibiotic along with another substance into a joint, it's with the belief that it will help reduce the infection. Now, the most current research shows that it doesn't actually, including amikacin, doesn't reduce the risk of infection within a joint. And it actually can cause serious damage to the chondrocytes, so cartilage cells. So Current uh, recommendations do not support the use of putting antibiotic into a joint, whether that's alongside uh, hyaluronate sodium, whether that's alongside corticosteroids. At the moment, um, yet there's no good evidence to suggest and it's not recommended to use amikacin or antibiotics within a joint injection in those cases. So keep that in mind. In terms of corticosteroids, they can quickly reduce inflammation within a joint, which is advantageous in that um, high levels of inflammation within a joint, again, results in decreased synovial fluid quality, so it becomes watery, loses its viscosity, and that in turn, um, as well as those high levels of inflammation, can compromise cartilage integrity. The flip side of that is we know that... um, Again, research has shown that corticosteroids given within a joint can actually be what we call cytotoxic to chondrocytes. So they can kill off cartilage cells and cartilage has a really limited capacity to regenerate and return over. And we know that the effects of a single uh, corticosteroid injection into a joint has lasting effects in terms of the damage it can potentially do to cartilage cells. Um, so I think it's really important if we're looking at using corticosteroids in a joint to be really aware that it, they can cause irreversible damage and that we don't want to be reliant on them. As with many things, there are exceptions to the rule, but I think we can sometimes forget or not even be aware of the flip side of using some of these products because they're used so regularly and we often don't stop to question Um, or delve deeper into the research. The other thing about often is if corticosteroids are used without addressing other contributing factors to joint health, such as diet, such as, you know, employing good quality, appropriate uh, dosage, nutraceuticals or herbal medicines, without looking at farriery and graduated workload or incrementally increasing workload in a horse, We can just get reliant on using corticosteroids in a joint and once we use them and get some relief, that relief wears off if other factors haven't been addressed properly and you get into this um, cycle where a horse has its 
joints injected every four to six weeks and every single time that joint is injected, yes, there may be some relief from the inflammation initially, but there's more and more damage done to that cartilage. And keep in mind that cartilage has a poor ability to regenerate and the older a horse is, the less able, in theory, they are to be able to regenerate that cartilage if they do have the ability to. So when it comes to joint injections, I think it's really important that we ask why are we injecting our horse? Is it because we think it's preventative or think it's going to be helpful? Are we addressing everything else in terms of diet and management that we can to help promote good joint health in our horses or are we using it as a clutch? Um, and what substances exactly are we injecting into the joint? Are we using um you know, hyaluronic sodium, which arguably has, some, you know, some beneficial properties. Are we using glucosaminoglycans, again, which have, you know, potentially have some really beneficial qualities? Or are we looking at corticosteroids? And what's our plan going forward? You know, are we going to keep doing this every four to six weeks? Is it a once-off? Just asking ourselves those questions before we just suddenly jump on board injecting joints is really, really important. I think the other types of joint injections are a group of what we call uh, orthobiologics or regenerative medicines. These include products such as IRAP. So these are made of, you know, conditioned serum. We've got things like PRP, so platelet-rich plasma, um, and things like stem cells. We probably won't go into them today or we could be here uh, for hours, um, but it's you know, it's worth being aware that they're about, but the ones that we've spoken on in more detail are certainly or probably going to be things that our listeners are more familiar with and more accessible to most of the population in that regenerative medicine tends to be quite expensive and quite specialised. Camilla, if I've got a horse that needs an injection, I'm going to have a long conversation with you beforehand. <laughs> So, um, but before we go into your contact details, are there any other factors, any other questions I should have asked you or any other factors that, you know, that will play a significant role in joint health? Anything else we need to talk about before we finish off? I'm glad you've asked that question, Glenis, because <laughs> okay. absolutely. So the way I see horse health is it's holistic. So, again, we've talked about the joints, but we know that there's so much more that goes into joint health alone, then throwing some supplements at our horses. So intestinal health plays a role. We know that before a horse is even bred, it's mother's health plays a role, the mare's health plays a role, how that horse is managed and progressed at different life stages plays a role. We also need to take into account trimming or farriery. So when our horse is trimmed or they're shod, what are their hoof angles? How are they balanced? Does our horse have regular body work or does it need body work? So if a horse is moving freely, it's going to load its joints arguably better than a horse that's tight in one area or stiff in one area and having compensatory loading. Is our saddle fit good if we're if we're riding our horses? So our horse is comfortable and again able to freely move itself. Does our horse's bit fit well? So is it comfortable with that and carrying itself in a balanced fashion? So anything that relates to how our horse moves and feels has the potential to relate again to its joint health and again maybe it's a biased point of view I have but I think so often we go well what's you know what's a good supplement we can give our horses for their joints rather than going well 
what contributes to good joint health and moving in a balanced fashion and loading joints evenly, working within the confines of a horse's confirmation and their age and, you know, our intended purpose for them is really, really important. So definitely working in line with a good trimmer or a good farrier, on, you know, whether you shoe your horse or whether your horse goes barefoot. And again, making sure our horse is comfortable and able to move freely and easily are really, really important um, beyond all the other things we've touched on today. Something that I think is worth mentioning in terms of trimming or farrier, I always like a farrier or trimmer to look at a horse walk up and back a few times before they start trimming or before they take the shoes off or put shoes on. And I also like them to watch a horse walk up and back a few times after they've done the job. I think it's really important for them to see how a horse is moving before they go trimming away or putting shoes on because every horse moves differently, subtly, and how that horse moves, I believe, should influence how it's trimmed or shod. So that's a little particular that um, I like to uh, ensure a dress and maybe something that your listeners might like to think about. Again, like most of us in the, you know, horse health profession, it, you can get very busy with client loads and want to need to see clients quickly and, you know, whether that's going over their veterinary diagnostics or whether it's, you know, putting shoes on. We always, we don't always, but we often feel under pressure to do something quickly or to get the job done. Taking a little bit of extra time just to watch your horse move, I think is invaluable in terms of the way it's trimmed. Invaluable in terms of many things, but, yeah, I think um, that's just a little note to finish on, I reckon. <laughs> well, you always give us lots to think about anyway. You know, just to go back and listen to this chat and then go back and listen again and then think, oh, I've missed out on that bit. Maybe go back and listen to a previous chat. So, Camilla, we're going to put all your previous chats on your page at horsechats.com. People can go there, just search for Camilla or search for Weishaw, W-H-I-S-H-A-W. But is there any, what contact details would you like us to put on the page on Horse Chats? Thanks, Gladys. They can, listeners can jump onto my website, which is all the Optum Equine, all being one word, and it's spelled O-P-T-I. M-E-Q-U-I-N-E dot com. You'll find Optum Equine on Facebook and you will find Optum Equine on Instagram. So they're probably the best ways to, you know, there's plenty of info in all those areas on different things. It's on joint health, but there's plenty of information on other things too. So All right, so lots of information there. And if you've got a particular area that you'd like Camilla to address as well, you can contact us at horsechats.com. And uh, just ask us next time we invite Camilla to to have a chat if we can talk about a particular subject. Camilla, thank you. Thank you for chatting. Thank you for all your information and preparation and everything else that you do. I don't know if we've got time to to talk a little bit about joint injections. There was a couple of areas there that you may want to go into more depth or I'm sure you, you know, otherwise you've got a completely new subject next time you come in. So looking forward to chatting with you again. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Liz. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. 
And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.